Let's go ahead. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We are starting a a new book today, a new letter. Um, We're back to the New Testament. We tend to transfer back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we just finished an Old Testament book in Ecclesiastes. And today we will begin the New Testament book. um, That is Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. So, if you will, would you, I'm going to read verse, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So, if you will, would you listen to the inerrant word of the living God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Church, would you join with me in prayer? Our holy God, the only wise God who has all power and authority and dominion and glory and honor forever and ever. To you we bow. To you we humbly present ourselves this day in this place where you've called us to gather and lift up your wondrous name and to hear your word. We pray, gracious God, that you would speak to us this day. Speak to us by means of the word that you have given you have you are a god who communicates with his people you are a god who speaks and we give you praise and thanks that you have spoken most clearly and most finally in the person of your son jesus christ we give you praise and thanks our lord jesus christ who put on flesh and dwelt among us who fulfilled the law perfectly in his life, who died as a perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world for our sins, the one who ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father from where he rules and reigns over the affairs of men and from whence he will come again to, and judge the living and the dead. We give you praise and thanks, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, who judges, convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, we praise you. We realize that it is your ministry to glorify Christ. So we pray that this day as we experience and we encounter the risen Christ, that you would make him manifest in our lives so that we see him clearly. Fill us with your joy and enable us to walk in your power. To the triune God, for whom there is no beginning and no end. We are grateful for gathering us here this day. Open our hearts, open our ears, 
move upon our spirits that we might love you more than we did when we came in and that by loving you more, we would be a testimony of, to, the, to a dying world of your grace and mercy. So we thank you now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, who was and is and is to come. Hallelujah. Amen. The year was about 315 A.D. The place was Alexandria, Egypt, a place where the Christian faith had flourished. A presbyter in Alexandria, a man who was known for his compelling uh, sermons, a man who was loved by his parishioners, a charismatic personality, began to teach what many believed was a very rational view about the person of Jesus. It just made sense. It was simple to understand. The presbyter, the man, Arius, firmly believed in one God. He was strictly a monotheist. And therefore, he taught, Jesus could not be the second person of the Trinity. Prior to his creation by God, Jesus could not have existed. He would teach, and his words were, there was a time when Jesus was not. A time when Jesus did not exist. Jesus is the highest and best of all of God's creation, but he is not divine, at least not in the same way that the Father is divine. Arius was persuasive, and many adopted his theology. But many did not, and the result was that the emperor called, in 325, the emperor called a council to assemble, and bishops from all over the Christian world gathered in a town or a city called Nicaea. And it is in Nicaea where the views of Arius were presented and subsequently condemned as heretical. From this council came a creed, that is a statement of faith. We call it the Nicene Creed. And it was the aberrant view of Arius that compelled the Orthodox Church to communicate a concise statement of what the Church believed regarding the person of Jesus Christ. The Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed was a reaction to false teaching. It was a pushback. Prior to that, people just believed certain things about Christ, that He was divine, He was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That was assumed until a societal shift took place and Arius began teaching that this started teaching something different. And the church responded or reacted to that unorthodox view. Biblical truth is often communicated in response to a a corruption of biblical truth. Let me restate that. Biblical truth is often communicated in response to a corruption of biblical truth. Perhaps maybe today a good 
a good example of this would be the Nashville Statement. And you might be wondering, well, what is the Nashville Statement? The Nashville Statement was a statement of faith that was produced around 2017, I believe, is when, when it came out. And it was a biblical statement, or it was a statement on the biblical view of men and women and marriage. And we think... Why does that need to be stated? I mean, duh, the Bible is very clear on what marriage is and what a man is and what a woman is. But society had shifted and people began to teach different views about what marriage is and what a man is and what a woman is. Things that Christians for decades millennia had just taken for granted. Nobody thought that we needed a statement about that thing. But due to societal shifts, a statement um, was demanded, required, if you will. A, a, conc- a concise statement, bringing all of the, the biblical truths together and making a concise statement of what is a biblical marriage. This is the Nashville Statement. In other words, it was a reaction. Nobody... 50 years ago says, well, we need a a statement about what marriage is. We just assumed we knew what it was. We still know exactly what it is. But again, societal pressure began to be something different began to be taught. And it wasn't simply that something different began to be taught, but that different teaching began to infiltrate and uh, affect the Christian church. And so a statement is made. This is the way many of our statements come about. We're just kind of going about our day, doing our business, believing certain things, taking certain truths for granted until there is pressure or uh, an adaptation by the church of heretical teachings and then a statement of truth comes out. Let me say this, Colossians, the book of Colossians is a manifesto of orthodoxy. Aberrant views of Christ had permeated the Colossian church and Paul was setting forth a corrective statement. This is what the book or the letter of Colossians um, is, is centered on. It is centered on the person of Christ because aberrant views, false views about who Christ is, people just took for granted we know who Christ is. It had been taught, but aberrant views begin to creep in, and so a corrective needs to be presented. Colossians is that corrective. As I said, aberrant views of Christ had permeated the Colossian church, and now Paul is setting forth a corrective statement. A right view of Christ dominates this letter. So, just as we go forward, we're going to learn some vocabulary today. It's going to be important as we go forward. And so, Colossians is about Christology. And I think I, there it is. Christology, so we're going to probably use this term periodically. You'll hear me use it today. Um, but just we should know what we're talking about. Basically, it is the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That simple. You can see Christology. And the last, basically, a word about Christ. What did Christ, who was Christ and what did he do? So the book of Colossians focuses on Christology. So, here's my goal today, what I hope to uh, accomplish in uh, the few moments that I have up here, and that is, 
First of all, what I want to do is present a big picture of the book of Colossians. We're going to fly over from 30,000 feet and see the major contours of the book of Colossians. We're, uh, we're going to look at the, the big themes in the book of Colossians. And then, after we've seen the major contours, we are going to descend and view verses 1 and 2 in great detail. So, that's the way that the message is going to go. Fly over at 30,000 or 40,000 feet or whatever. We're going to see the, the, the major contours and then we're going to come down a little bit closer and look at the first two verses in great detail. And then as we go through the book in, in, in coming weeks, we will um, give great attention to detail about uh, some of the big themes that we are going to discuss today. So that's where we're going to go. You with me? All right. Here we go. Let's just, first of all, let's talk about the way the book is divided. So the book division. It's really pretty simple. Um, Paul, Paul's letters are often divided in, in this way. In fact, Ecclesiastes was divided into, two broad, into these two broad categories. But let's talk about the book division um, that we see that is very common in Paul, and that is they begin with a theological section, and then they tend to, they tend to conclude with a, you might say, a practical application of that theology. So here's the theology, now how do we live out that theology? So we, we will put it this way. We will put it as um, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Sawyer, if you would put that screen up, I think it's number three. There it is. Orthodoxy is just simply right teaching. Right teaching. That's all orthodoxy means. There's a second vocabulary word. Right teaching. And then it is followed by orthopraxy, which is right living. So we're going to see these two broad divisions as we go through the book of Colossians. Right teaching and right living. Or we could even say the first part is about the supremacy of Christ and the second part is submission to Christ. The supremacy of Christ, He is going to be presented as high and lifted up above all things. And then the second part of the book is, well then, how do I live in light of the fact that He is supreme? That is how the book is divided. Um, and it's basically chapters 1 and 2 and we'll see that, that sharp division at around chapters at around chapter 3 um, and going into chapter 4. Right teaching, right living, supremacy of Christ, submission to Christ. And this is the right order. Right living, let me, let me make a, a firm statement here. Right living only flows out of right teaching. And, and that's important for us today because, well, not just us today, but throughout the course of, of church history and the life of believers, many have perhaps innocently but wrongly made the statement that I don't need to know all of the doctrine and all the theology. We just need to love Jesus. We just need to love one another. Well, I, I would, of course, push back and say, well, then we have to know who Jesus is. We have to know what love is. 
Those things form the foundation. We cannot love one another if we don't have a biblical understanding of what love is. And we can't love Jesus if we don't have a biblical understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Doctrine, theology, precedes action. Paul has this, makes a compelling case. And many of his letters, probably most of his letters, are written in this way. There's a theological statement, and then now this is how you live out that theology, that doctrine. For instance, if the work of Christ is not sufficient, one might adopt additional practices to gain favor with God. If the work of Christ is not sufficient, doctrine, then our practice, that is, let's adopt um, additional practices to gain favor with God, might follow. If you don't have a right view of who Christ is and what He has done, then the way you live out your life of faith will likely be off. And in fact, many of the things maybe that you end up adding to your life are good things. But they are given the wrong emphasis. For instance, you and I might all agree, and I'm sure we will, that prayer is good. Alright, so we can all say prayer is good. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Alright, prayer is good. But if we do not have a right understanding of the person and work of Christ, we can end up making prayer a means by which we gain favor with God. In other words, if I don't pray X amount or 30 minutes a day, that each day, then bad things are going to happen. Or we might end up saying something like this, I'm sick, so that must mean I do not have enough faith. Those are errant actions based on bad doctrine. If your standard is off, everything will be off. And so Colossians is the North Star of Christology. It is going to point us firmly upon the person and work of Christ. And with that centered, we can then live a life that is honorable and glorifying to Christ. So, that's how the book is divided. Let me, let me share some big themes with you. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give you three big themes. There are certainly more than that, um, but I'm just going to give you three today. Actually, three and a half. And the first big theme, as I've already mentioned, and maybe you're already tiring of, but the first big theme is Christ. That's the big theme. If you've read Colossians, you cannot escape that truth. Christ, who is he and what has he done? Who is Christ and what has he accomplished? And Paul provides incredible details about who Christ is. Let's listen, and we're going to spend a lot of time on the Christ hymn. Verses, chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things and in Him. Him all things hold together. 
And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. This is Christ! Then in chapter 1, 19, and in chapter 2, 2, 9, we see that in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That in Christ, Christ is the fullness of deity in flesh. We see in chapter 2, verse 10, that He is uh, the head of all rule and authority. Um, For in Him, verse 9, for in Him, chapter 2, verse 9, for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been filled in Him who is the head over and rule over all authority. Who is Christ? He is head and rule over all authority. Really all authority? Yes, all authority. That includes not only governmental authority, Supreme Court authority, whatever governmental system you, you, you dwell in, not only human authority, but angelic authority. Principalities, powers, demons, angels, all authority. He is rule over all authority. He disarmed, in fact, it goes on in... in Verse 15, He, Christ, disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them uh, in Him. So all, we're, we're going to see angelic authorities, have been put to open shame by the work of Christ. Christ is supreme over all. What has He done? He has disarmed and um, humbled all ruling authorities. This is who Christ is. We see in chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And in chapter 3, verse 4, He will return to judge the living and the dead. So, who is Christ? He is the, Paul focuses um, majorly on the person and work of Jesus Christ in this book. And so, He is the creator of all things, the beginning of all things. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's the head of all rule and authority. He has disarmed rulers and authorities. He has put them to open shame. He has purchased our salvation. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father and He will return again. This is who Paul is presenting as Uh, the person and work of Christ. Let me give you a quick side note. One place where His supremacy is on display is in His church. And actually, the church would be another big theme, but I'm not going to go into it today. But His supremacy is on display in His church. The church, Paul, is going to communicate. The church is the instrument by which Christ manifests His rule over all on the earth until He comes again. Think about that. The church is the instrument, the means, by which Christ manifests His rule over all on earth until He comes again. It is through Christ, it is through the church, that Christ displays His supremacy. Do you think the church is important? It is through the church. I know we, we kind of, oh, the church is kind of a, a, 
a separate thing. It's something that we can do, take or leave or whatever. It's kind of optional. No, the church and especially the local expression of the church is the means by which Christ displays his supremacy overall. So, we have this idea of Paul's going to present. Who is Christ and what has he done? We might ask the question, well, why does Paul have to write this? Why is that necessary? Well, as I stated in the beginning, many times we, we put forth um, creedal and doctrinal statements as a response to false teaching. And that's exactly what's going on here. There is false teaching going on in the Colossian church. False teachers had polluted the pure teaching of the gospel. They were teaching that Christ is great. But not enough. In other words, Christ plus. Christ and. So Paul is writing this corrective. He's writing and upholding this high view of Christ so that the Colossian church would not be deluded with plausible arguments. Chapter 2, verse 4, taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, not Christ. Chapter 2, verse 8, they were uh, performing works of, uh, of asceticism, basically um, uh, punishing themselves to make themselves holy, physical deprivement so that they would be seen as holy. They were practicing uh, asceticism. They had added the observance of holy days as a means of righteousness. They were worshiping angels. They were giving themselves to the influence of, te- of human teaching, self-made religion, licentiousness, basically do whatever you want. Man, God just loves you. Live however you want. There's no care in the world. You have no boundaries, no borders. Just do If it feels good, do it. These are the things that are the ideas that, have the, that are impacting the Colossian church. Um, and Paul is now responding to those. And he is responding to them um, by exalting Christ. So, let me give you a quick summary of what I have just addressed. The church has been planted, the church in Colossae has been planted and established in the truth. The gospel prevailed in the church of Colossae. Just a quick note. We don't know who planted the church in Colossae. Paul didn't. Paul, at the time of this writing, had never been to the city of Colossae. More likely than not, we can debate this, but perhaps a man by the name of Epaphras, uh, we see him in chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 4, verse 2. Perhaps he was the one who planted it, or was at least the pastor there. Um, but when the church was planted, it was planted in the truth and the gospel prevailed. But eventually, false teachers began to influence and pollute the pure gospel. And I want to be, be clear about something. They were not teaching to abandon Christ. They were not saying, listen, all you Christians, you need just to reject Christ. He's, he's a nobody. He never really existed. Oh, he didn't. They are not saying that. They are saying Jesus is a great man. They are saying that Jesus is awesome. And he is the, the means by which you can be saved. They are not abandoning Christ. May I take note of this church. What they are doing is that they are fusing different beliefs into the pure gospel. 
Another fancy word, we'll call that syncretism. But it's just a fusion of two ideas together. So we have the gospel, which is pure, that the church was founded on, and then false teachers coming on and saying, we can merge these two ideas together, and they can live together in harmony. And Paul comes back and says, no, they can't. So we might think of today, well, is this applicable to me in any ways? Yeah, I think so. The church today is syncretistic in many, many ways. I pray that we aren't, but maybe we are. I pray that God will open our hearts and minds so that, you know, we are not syncretistic, that we maintain the pure biblical truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. But a great one, the law of attraction, that's a new age principle. Here's how it gets displayed in the Christian church. You've heard it. Some of the most famous preachers that you are going to, that some of you probably even listen to, will say, listen, what you need to do, we call it the um, um, positive confession. That's just simply the New Age view of the law of attraction. Don't say anything negative. Only say something positive because you have to understand that your positive words go out into the universe and they return back to you. That is not biblical at all. And if you say something negative, that also goes out into the universe and comes back to you in a negative way. So don't say, you know, I hope I don't lose my job. You see, you've just put out negative words. And that's going to come back to you. That is not in the Bible, but it's preached in many churches throughout our country today. The law of attraction, fusion, syncretism. The doctrine that you are little gods. That God creates after his own kind and God made a God and you are gods. In fact, some preachers will say, you want to know what God looks like? Look at me. These are popular teachers. So... Jesse Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland say these things. Don't listen to them. Yes, I'll name names. That is heretical. You are not a little God. Maybe on the other side of things, perhaps more progressive Christian views would be that all roads lead to heaven. Everything leads to God. The first two examples I gave you, those people probably wouldn't say that. But there is a a view that, listen, believe whatever you want. God is just happy. Or believe nothing at all. It's okay. And these things get fused into the church. Maybe one of the more um, uh, better disguised elements that gets fused into the church. It's become pretty popular in the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, and that's the Enneagram. The Enneagram is is a personality test, and I have no problem with personality tests. If you take the Myers-Briggs or what have you, I mean, I have no problem. I don't think there's anything about that. But the Enneagram has has come in through, quote, Christian teachers, even Orthodox Christian teachers, with no regard that its origin is in the occult firmly established in the occult. The one who popularized it, Richard Rohr, today, is an utter... He's not a Christian. Just not. Um, So these are ideas that... So I'm talking about fusion of ideas, syncretism. Paul is dealing with syncretism 
It hasn't escaped us. We are affected by societal ideas that creep into our churches and they affect how we understand the person of Christ. And so the first big theme is Christ, that he is supreme and sufficient. With that, the second big theme is Christian living, right? Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, Christian living. The the exaltation of Christ has real and meaningful implications for those who are, quote, in Christ. The Colossians, Paul exhorts the Colossians to walk in him just as you were taught. The idea of walk is going to be a major, maybe not a major theme, but but an important theme in the book of Colossians, to walk... to, to walk in Christ, which is really just a, a picturesque way of saying, this is how you should uh, conduct your life, your everyday life, your everyday walk. It is a reference then to walk in Him is a reference to live one's life in a manner that refre- reflects accurately the Christ is, who is supreme. In other words, live your life according to the, to, uh, the mandates or the example of Christ. And walking in him, Paul sets that phrase, walking in him, walking in Christ, he sets that in in opposition to the false teachings that permeate permeate the culture. So, he says that we are not to be taken captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The teachings that Paul is referring to are teachings that are enslaving. They lack substance. They are demonic. They have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, but they deny the power of the message of the gospel. Walking in Christ is a walk of faith, all right? And it counters the lie that one is saved by faith and sanctified by works. Paul is not going to put that forth, that one is saved by grace and then one main, that one... um, lives their life, maintains that favorable relationship with God by works. In other words, in order to to maintain God's favor, he saved me. I know he saved me. But now in order for me to maintain that salvation, in order for me to maintain that favorable disposition of God, I need to perform. I need to work. Chapter 2, 18, Paul rallies against human works designed to garner God's approval of the one who is saved by grace. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous not, mind and not holding fast to the head. So the asceticism, the worship of angels, visions, all of these... Uh, Philosophical reason, uh, words like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, these all have the appearance of godliness but deny the power of the gospel. We are told in chapter 3, verse 1, to seek things above, not things of the earth. Christ said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Later, Paul was going to use this, this phrase, put these things off and put these things on like a garment. Put off this old nasty garment and put on this new garment. So, this is very nuanced. See, there are rules for a believer. There are works, I think, that a believer does. 
But I want you to know the works, the rules that are for a believer do not garner favor with God. See, God already granted you favor upon salvation. You had nothing. You were a sinner lost in your sin, a hater of God, and God in His favor towards you. He demonstrated His favor by um, revealing Christ to you. So God has already demonstrated that He loves you. That, so we do not need to garner favor like I better do more stuff so that God really, really loves me. No, God already really loves you. How do I know? He sent Christ to die for your sins. You can't get better love than that. What are you going to do to beat that? Well, well, let me pray more or let me read the Bible more or go to church more or let me um, share the gospel more. Well, I pray we're doing all of those things more. But if you're doing it to garner God's favor... This is where Paul is going to uh, address that there's a problem. So we do not garner favor with God, but we are to reflect that God has truly regenerated us. Evidence that we have been saved by God's good pleasure at salvation. He gave us new hearts that find joy in following his commands. So we follow his commands. Why? Because at salvation, God granted us, gave us a new heart that loves and takes joy in following God's commands. Rules, Douglas Moo in his commentary says, rules never, must never take the place of Christ as the source of spiritual nourishment and growth. And any rules that we propose to follow must clearly must be clearly rooted in and lead back to Christ. So they are the outflow of our, uh, they are the outflow of being born again. They are the outflow that we are a new creation. Paul, Paul says that um, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I'm going to give you a new heart. And that new heart now takes joy in loving God. Yeah, we mess up, which is why we have repentance and, we, and God forgives us. So, second big theme, and we'll unpack this as we go through, is Christian living. The third big theme and, uh, is the gospel. What it does and its finality. The gospel is a theme. There is no section in the book of Colossians that says, here's the gospel. But the gospel is woven throughout the entire book of Colossians. The gospel, Paul says in verse 5, is the truth. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is the truth. And let me just tell you, truth needs no supplement. Truth, by definition, is final. It needs nothing added to it. We might need to explain it or we might need to give an example of it, that type of thing. But we don't need to add to it. And likely the false teachers have sought to add to the gospel, asserting that the work of Christ, his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, present rule, needs something added to it. It needs a supplement. The work of Christ needs a supplement. And they were all too happy to sell it to you. The reference divisions indicate the promotion of new revelation.
chapter 2, um, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Here he sets forth the gospel and it needs no supplement. It needs no addition. It does not need a booster shot. An application that many who claim adherence to Christ today publish so-called new revelation, claiming that their visions or their dreams or their personal words of God um, need to be considered. And Paul is saying, no, we, we don't need new revelation and new word. Because why? The gospel is sufficient. Because it is the word of truth. And we do not need to add it. We can explain it better, but we don't need a new gospel. Paul maintains that the word of truth revealed in Christ is sufficient and needs nothing added to it. So those are our three big, big themes and we'll deal with more. And now let's actually get into our text. <laughs> Aren't you glad I only chose two verses? <laughs> chapter, or chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, it's an introduction to a letter. And how do, you, how, how do you address a letter? There's a from and a to. And um, let's go ahead and... Uh, thank you. And it's from Paul, an, ap- an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is who the letter's from. It's from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me just quickly remind you of, of what an apostle is. An apostle is somebody who is sent with a message from somebody over him. So it is a person who has an authority over them. That authority over them gives them a message and they go and deliver it. That's what an apostle is. Pretty simple. He is one under authority. An apostle is not a free agent. He does not have the liberty to alter or amend a message. So if the one in authority, the king or the the mayor or the governor, gave him a message, he couldn't get halfway to to delivering it and say, you know what, I think I'm going to make a little change right here. Oh, this word here, let me just scribble that out. He had no authority to amend the, the message. He was just simply to deliver the message. That's it. He didn't apologize for it. He didn't try to bolster it. He said, here's the message. That's what an apostle was, and that's what he did. He does not have the right to create his own message. He doesn't get halfway in his journey to deliver the message. He goes, oh, this is junk. Let me give, I got a better, I got a better message. He doesn't have that authority. He also doesn't have the authority to sign somebody else's name to it. This comes from the mayor. This comes from the governor. This comes from so-and-so. This is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He cannot amend or put somebody else's name on it. So he is of Jesus Christ, which, who indicates the authority who sent him. And one of the first places we see this is in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Paul's conversion. You know it well, but listen. But the Lord called him. 
speaking um, to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, Paul, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings before the children of Israel. Paul is my chosen instrument to bear my message to a specific group of people. Paul understands, I'm that person. I have no authority to change the message. I have no authority to sign my name to it. I have no authority. This is the message of Jesus Christ, and I am under, I have no ability, no freedom to alter that message. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. So first, right at the very beginning, don't we see the supremacy of Christ, which is going to dominate this letter? We see it right here. He is supreme. He has given me a message. And the message comes from the Supreme One, and I am under no authority whatsoever to alter it. So, from Paul, the Apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, Paul did not achieve this calling as an Apostle by education. He did not climb the vocational ladder. He was set apart in his mother's womb. Galatians 1.15 Like other um, prophets, Isaiah chapter 49 Verses 1 and 5. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. This is Isaiah. Verse 5, he says this. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. I am, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. I was formed in my mother's womb for this purpose. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, very well-known passage of text, but let me read it because Jeremiah the prophet says the exact same thing. Before God speaking to... Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And Paul, from in his mother's womb, was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is not called because he climbed the corporate ladder or the vocation ladder and says, okay, now I meet all the qualifications. Here's my resume, God. Paul, before Paul had done anything in his life, whether good or bad, he was chosen by God to be an instrument through which the good news of the excellency of Christ would be made known to the world. Paul's authority is not self-derived, but it is found in the eternal plan of God. This is from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And I'm just going to focus on the word our because to me this was encouraging. And so I'll just share it. Paul and Timothy had never met the Colossians and yet this does not dilute the fellowship of faith that they have. Paul, Timothy is our brother. We've never met. But I want you to know we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a We share a Savior, and so therefore, we are part of the same family. Timothy is part of that family. This is the from, from the Apostle Paul, by the will of God, to Timothy, our brother, and it is to the saints and faithful brothers, the Church of Colossae. Some translations, and I like this idea, is they they use the word holy ones, to the holy ones. 
which is saints. So, so then the question is, well, what makes them holy? Well, well the idea of holy, while it does have a, um, a, a moral component to it, to be holy, there is a moral, like, you know, we should be, live right and you know, be good and nice and generous and all of those things. There is a moral component. But, but more prominently, the idea of holy is to be set apart. It describes one who is distinct, one who is uh, maybe not part of the group, not part of the set apart. Lots of things in the Bible are holy, not, peop- not just people. Lots of things can be holy. We would probably consider these little plastic containers holy, not because they're going to, I don't know, heal you if you touch you, but they are set apart for something. They are set apart to hold the juice and the bread for communion. So they are set apart. They are holy. These people are set apart. Set apart then from what? Well, we can look at chapter 2, verse 13 and following. They are set apart from being dead by reason of their trespasses and sins and made alive, forgiven of their sins. They are set apart from being, um, from being a sinner, from being an enemy of God. They are set apart from the vain philosophies that the, people were te- that the false teachers were teaching. They are set apart from the corruption and evil rulers and ungodly passions. They were set apart from the kingdom of darkness and united to the kingdom of Christ. When saved by Christ, church, we are set apart from something and to something, or maybe I should say we are set apart from something to someone. The faithful brothers in Christ... This word in Christ is just a huge theme in the Bible. Um, I'll just I'll encourage you read the first chapter of Ephesians if you want to get an idea of in Christ. Well, I'll just do it. Part of it. We've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It just goes on and on and on. This is who you are in Christ. Union with Christ. That is, they have partaken of all that Christ has done. Paul says the old has come, I'm sorry, the old has been done away with and the new has come. So, you are saints, holy ones, in Christ. You are joined in union with Christ. That what is His, what all of His benefits are now yours. To the church at Colossae. Colossae was... Uh, once a very significant city, but by the time Paul wrote this letter, it had lost significance. Perhaps it's the type of city that at one time was, um, I don't know, was really popular, and then the highway comes through, and it goes past that town, and now that town just kind of becomes insignificant. Colossae is no longer a significant town. But I think the really important thing for us today is this. Their spiritual residence, quote, in Christ, is given priority over their physical um, residence at Colossae. All right. One more big theme, but it's an important one, and then we'll conclude. We still have a ways to go, so...
Grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. Grace. Probably the most fundamental element of the, the Christian faith, or one of the most distinct elements of the Christian faith is grace. And it is a fundamental element of Paul's teaching. They are his. They belong to God. The Colossians belong to God because of God's unmerited gift, undeserved gift. Romans chapter 5, verse 2, says this, Through him, through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Only by God's intervention on our behalf have we received the benefits of Christ's saving work. In other words, we love God because he first loved us. Grace. God's intervention on our behalf, allowing us to receive the benefits of Christ's saving work. You are his because of his unde- because of his undeserved gift of salvation procured in Christ. It is not due to the ascetic practices that Paul is going to condemn or dietary observances or angelic worship or keeping holy days or philosophic acumen. That was taught by the teachers at Colossae. You are his because of his grace. Paul, who is a recipient of grace, extends this benefit to his audience. Paul is celebrating the work of grace in their lives. You are recipients of God's unmerited favor. Church on Randall Place, grace to you. You are recipients of God's unmerited favor. And peace. This word peace has roots, Hebrew roots, and the word shalom. It is where God's people were delivered from their enemies to experience both physical and spiritual well-being. But not only is grace from God, but peace is from God. But note this, great, grace precedes peace. That is, God's gift, grace, comes before the new relationship, peace. There is no peace of God apart from grace. There is no peace with God apart from God's grace. One should not overlook what is popularly missed. That is, that peace that comes um, from God includes peace from God. In other words, outside of Christ, we are, we are not God's allies or friends. We think that, well, um, just because I'm a human person, I am a recipient of God's divine favor. That's just not true. You do not have peace with God if you are outside of Christ. You may think you have peace with God, but grace must precede peace because we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature enemies of God. Peace from God includes the cessation of God's anger towards his enemies, and that only comes by grace. The Colossians are assured that because of the work of Christ, God is now their Father who cares for them. Hence, they have peace. We've been saved by grace. We are no longer enemies of Christ. And so we have peace with God the Father. Grace and peace. And now I'll conclude. So orthodoxy. That is, correct teaching in the midst of heretical movements remains an essential part of the church. 
Correct teaching in the midst of heretical movements remains an essential part of the church. And I pray it remains as an essential part of this church. Temptation to supplement the gospel are ever-present and, and supported by those who claim Christian identity. People who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ often advocate adding something to the gospel. But I will say this, the old-time gospel needs no addition. The sufficiency of Christ's work does not wane. It does not ebb. It does not erode. It does not need to be updated. Cultures may change, but the human condition does not. The cross has not lost its power. Orthopraxy, that's dependent upon orthodoxy. Let's not confuse them. The fruit of the gospel is a life conformed to Christ. The fruit of the gospel that Christ has transformed your life is that we are now conformed to the image of Christ. So I guess we need to know Christ, which is a good thing because Colossians is all about Christ. That we grow more and more like Him. And then finally, as I've said many times today, the gospel needs no, isn't, needs no improvement. The letter to the Colossians will set forth the gospel centered on Christ who is above all. So I will conclude my message today with the words of Paul. So set your mind on things above where Christ is. Father God, we give you